All right, well, we are glad to be back together in the book of Deuteronomy. The book of Deuteronomy, chapter 20 and 21, is what we'll be discussing and preaching today and and talking about. So, uh, before we uh, get into that, we want to pray and uh, thank our Savior for His Word, and we will see what He has for us today in Deuteronomy. Lord, we thank You so much for bringing us here this morning to to hear from Your Word, to uh, be encouraged from it, Lord. We have gone through a season of time in our church where uh, we have not been able to be face-to-face in encouraging one another. Uh, We've encouraged each other through uh, technology, uh, but Lord, uh, we just pray that... uh, Here soon we will be able to be encouraged uh, by seeing one another and actually speaking to one another. And Lord, we just thank you for our body of believers. Lord, how much of an encouragement they are to me and to one another. And Lord, uh, just being a part of a wonderful family of God is uh, such a rich and awesome privilege, Lord. And we thank you for that. I pray that we would be encouraged and strengthened by what we hear this morning in your name. Amen. All right, well, Deuteronomy, uh, again, is what we've been in for um, quite some time. And Jeremy covered uh, parts of the law last week. This section of that we're in in Deuteronomy is a lot about the law and things that God set up for the nation. And I just wanted to kind of remind us of where we are and kind of where we're, we're, where we're heading as well. Um, over in, the nation of Israel really didn't begin as a nation, uh, truly as a group of people till they got to Egypt. Now there was a, uh, you know, the son, um, Jacob and his sons and so on, and they moved to Egypt and the, the, the people of Israel began to flourish there in Egypt. And they were there 400 years under Egyptian rule in captivity. All right, and so they were their own people, but they were still governed by the laws and the system of Egypt, and that's kind of what they, uh, how they grew up in, and understood that. And then God freed them from Egypt, and we'll see that here uh, in chapter twenty. He reminds them of that, and then they went through forty years in the wilderness. And again, uh, not not really having anything to call their own. They traveled around and, and really never were a people that had an area that they could call their own. And that was 40. So almost 440, 400 and some, some say a little bit longer, but roughly around 440 years of the beginning of Israel, they really didn't have guidelines and, and structure. Uh, and that is what's going on here is God is giving the people structure and guidelines to live by as they come into their own land, the promised land. Now they had some rules and things that they, they lived by, but for the most part, they lived under Egypt or out in the wilderness. And so God is, through Deuteronomy and especially like in Leviticus and so on, is setting up laws and uh, guidelines to live by. And so when we understand that structure, that's why these laws are here. And it might sound like, these are weird and why do we have these? Well, again, God is using Israel 
to for his purpose. And he's setting them apart as a specific nation, a specific group of people to show the glory of God and ultimately to bring about his purpose, which is to bring the Savior of the world to to us. And so through the line of uh, Israel and through the line of David and so on, we see that Christ has come and that is the ultimate purpose. But in the, in the the time and where we are, God uses the people of Israel to uh, show who God is, show His character, and to be a people set apart. And so as we get into these laws, keep that thought process in your mind so that it helps us understand that this is a group of people, uh, a nation set apart to God as a holy group. Okay, So we are going to read through little sections at a time. Uh, I might just kind of paraphrase some sections because they say a lot of the same things. So we'll just kind of go back and forth. But if you desire to read it as we go, just read it as you hear me uh, speaking. Okay. So in um, Deuteronomy chapter number 20, the whole chapter is dealing with warfare and how to conduct yourself in war, uh, the, the different ways that God set it up. And as we get into this, it, it's, there's some unique stuff in here that really uh, shows God's character, His love and compassion to His people. Understanding what I just said about being in captivity and being in the wilderness for 440 years uh, between the two, they didn't fight. They didn't. They weren't uh, a nation of war. They didn't know war. It wasn't like that. They, they uh, joined in battles and so on. And so this wasn't something that this was constantly on their mind or what they grew up in. They didn't grow up in that. They grew up as a captive people. And so God here is teaching them how to conduct themselves in war and how this was going to look as they go into the promised land and begin to conquer it. Okay, so this is new to them. So let's read Deuteronomy chapter 20, verses 1 through 4 is what we'll start off with. When you go out to battle against your enemy and see horses and chariots and people more numerous than you, do not be afraid of them. For the Lord your God, who has brought you up from the land of Egypt, again, I said that's we're going to mention that here. So this is kind of the idea of the God, the same God that brought you up out of Egypt and all of the miracles that you saw there um, brought you up from the land of Egypt is with you. Okay, he is really making a strong statement to remind the nation here that the same God that uh, brought you out of that terrible situation in Egypt and through the Red Sea and all of the blessings in the wilderness, this same God is going to be with you. Verse 2, and when you are approaching the battle, and when you are approaching the battle, you, your, the priest shall come near and speak to the people. You shall say to them, okay, so this is the, the men that are scribed to speak for the Lord here. You shall, he shall say to them, hear, O Israel, you are approaching the battle against your enemies today. Do not be faint hearted. Do not be afraid or panic or tremble before them, okay? We'll, we'll come back to that verse in here in just a second. But he follows it up in verse 4 is a very key verse. For the Lord your God is one who will go with you 
to fight for you against your enemies to save you. Very important that God is relaying to the people here of Israel that the same God that saved them from Egypt is the same God that's going to fight for them. Okay, And he's reminding them, don't be fearful of their numbers, of their horses, of their chariots. If you, if you recall back to when they left and fled from Egypt, they were terrified of Pharaoh's army that was coming when they were backed up to the Red Sea. And they were able to see that. Now this generation is a long, you know, from a long time from that. But again, it's reminding them that this same God is there to protect them. And he says very clearly in verse 4 that I will fight for you and against your enemies to save you. So God is not saying I'm going to fight with you. He says I'm going to fight for you. And that means he is going to be the one that is uh, going to cause a victory to happen. Now, you've got to think as Israel, they have two choices here. Either to be super excited that the God of all eternity, the God of the universe, the God that their forefathers talked about, all the miracles He did, He says, I am going to fight your battles and I am going to save you. And very uh, important key aspect of that. Now, He's going to go through this next... Um, he's going to go through the next... Uh, from verse 5 to verse 9 is a section that's really kind of interesting and would be only unique to God. This would be a unique thing that God would do and being gracious to a group of people. Okay, God is being gracious to a uh, to groups of people within the army. Now back in those days typically the, all the men would be involved in ar- in the armed forces in some way somehow. And so God here is doing something that most kings and areas, uh, most rulers would never do because they want to have the largest group of people uh, possible assembled together to go to battle. And so he goes through here, and this shows again the character of God, and it shows also that he is in complete control of the situation and and. Uh, as we read through this. Now I'm just going to read verse 5 because verse 6, 7, and 8 um, say the same thing. That has changed the person. And so we'll read verse 5 and then we'll talk about all of them. Okay. So the officers also shall speak to the people saying, who is, uh, who is the man that has built a new house and has not dedicated it? Let him depart and return to his house. Otherwise, he might die in the battle and another man shall uh, dedicate it. Okay. So the idea in this little section here, God is releasing men from their obligation to the battle because uh, they have built a new house and they haven't yet moved into it, haven't dedicated it. And God is compassionate and understanding and saying, you know what, if that's you, stay home and dedicate your home and that's okay. Because remember, God is the one that's going to fight. God is the one that's in charge of this battle. And He, He needs men in the army, uh, because that is His way of, of doing warfare. But at the same time, um, He is compassionate. And it does say that they might die. 
So that it, this is real warfare. Men did die. God has chosen not to completely uh, eliminate any death in Israel. There was still, uh, obviously here, there was still the possibility of being able to die in warfare. And so in some scenarios, God goes into battle and no one dies on Israel's side. And some in some cases, he goes into battle, and some people do die. And just it's just the way warfare works, okay? And so here, God is being gracious, and he's showing mercy, and also showing that I don't have to have every man capable in the army to fight for me, because I am the great commander, and I am the one that actually will bring about the victory, not the numbers, okay? We look back through the history. How many times did God save the nation of Israel with very few numbers, right? Very few numbers, and God still brought about a great victory, but still needing uh, some people to join, okay? And some people to be in the army because that is his, uh, the way that he's chose to do it. Now, in verse number 6, it talks about a man that has a vineyard. He's planted a vineyard, but he hasn't yet... Uh, harvested and he hasn't yet enjoyed it. Go ahead, stay home, enjoy that because I don't want you to die in your battle and not be able to enjoy the fruits of your labor in your vineyard. And another man was engaged to be married. Okay, now there's a couple probably reasons here that God said maybe stay home because his mind's really not going to be on the battle, right? He's engaged to be married. He's going to be thinking about her. And God says, you stay home, get married to your, your betrothed, because if you die in battle, another man will make her uh, his wife. And so um, God was obviously graceful to there. And th- this is just a couple scenarios. Now, the idea given here is God is saying, I don't need every man. In the army, I don't need the entire nation of Israel to go to war. We are going to just have uh, who who I deem necessary. Okay, and if these men have these situations, they can stay home. And he also says here in verse number eight that if a man is faint-hearted or fearful, let him stay home because he might cause other men to be faint-hearted and fearful. And that goes back again to remind us Israel was not a warring community. This wasn't a, a people of war. And so when we understand that and understand the context around it, battles back then were so much different than they are now. Now, today, they're still fearful. I mean, you got bullets winging by your, your head and bombs exploding and long-range missiles and all of that. That's the warfare we know today, which is still very scary, and, and people get terrified. But the warfare of back then was all hand-to-hand close combat, swords, spears, maybe some arrows, uh, but for the majority of the time, it was very close. And so, if you were terrified, uh, you didn't have the option to you know, hide behind a rock and just shoot your gun. You had to get out in the battle. And the idea here is God doesn't want to see men going into battle and being scared and then running and retreating and causing other men to lose heart and, and lose trust in God and flee back. And so he doesn't uh, chastise these men. He doesn't say that, there's, that they're wrong or he's not giving the indication that they don't trust him as much. They have just a true fear.
fear of battle. And God says uh, they can also stay home. So again, just a God showing grace and mercy, but also showing, hey, I only need so many to fight. I don't have to have the entirety of um, the nation fighting with us. And then in verse 9, he says that he has the officers set up, uh, set up uh, captains over uh, the army. Okay, So commanders over each section. And so he, he sets up a section of, of different uh, groups of people and has commanders over them. So that's kind of the preliminary. God's saying, hey, when you go into battle, trust me. Everything's going to be okay because I'm going to bring about the victory. Then he allows certain groups of people to stay home and, and has grace and mercy on them. And then in verses 10 through 18, there's two different types of battles that God's going to talk about here. And we have some types, or some people can give some controversy on this, and people that don't believe in the Word of God or don't uh, believe the Word of God is true will often point you to this and say, see, this is a God that's not loving, or see, this is a God that uh, just teaches to kill people uh, without no regard for human life. And we'll see how much God does regard human life, but He also regards His holiness and that the, the land in which he dwells in must be uh, purged from unholy people. Okay, And so that, that's what's going to be going here. Now we're going to read through verses 10 through 15. Okay, Verses 10 through 15. When you approach a city to fight against it, and you shall offer it terms of peace... Okay. It shall uh, and it shall agree to make peace with you and open you open to you. Then all the people you are, f- <clears throat> then all the people who are found in it shall become your forced laborers and shall serve you. Okay, this doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to take them back to Israel and make them a part of Israel. Uh, it could be that they pay a tax and understand that they are uh, underneath, and they probably leave some uh, rulers there to to maintain um, some authority there. But that's kind of the idea that they'll be their servants. They'll probably send parts of their crops, parts of their agriculture back to Israel as a subservient nation, okay, or a, uh, a group underneath them. That's the idea given there, uh, and then. In verse 12, however, if it does not make peace with you, if they decide to go to battle and make war against, uh, and make war against you, then you shall besiege it. Okay? You shall besiege the city. Then the Lord your God gives it into your hand. You shall strike all the, all the men in it with the edge of the sword. Only the women and children and animals are to, are all uh, that is in the city, and all that is in the city, all its spoil, you shall take as a booty for yourselves, and you shall use the spoil of your enemies, which the Lord has, your Lord your God has given you. This shall be done to all cities that are very far from you. Okay, and we'll stop right there in the middle of verse 15. Now, there's, there's two groups of people talked about in this section. One group is a group of people that is far from uh, the nation of Israel. And the idea here is given that they are far enough away to possibly be a, an attack 
but they're not far. They're not close enough to be a uh, a that you would follow their traditions. Okay, so they're far enough away that you're not going to be influenced by their culture and their lifestyle, but they're close enough still that if they desired to come and attack you, that they could. And so God is saying, you know, go to these places and tell them, hey, uh, we're going to make a peace treaty. You guys will be underneath us as servants, but we will not slaughter you. If they say, no, we don't want that, you need to kill the men. Now, the idea there, again, is the men were the fighting forces of the day. And in this in this passage, it's not talking about massive countries and cities or massive you know, metropolis cities. These are villages and towns and where everyone in the town, all the men in the town would serve in the army as well as they would be, you know, the blacksmiths or whatever. When there was a war, all of the men would go. And so here God is saying you need to destroy all of the threat is the idea. Get Eliminate the threat, which would be eliminating the men. And then take the women and children. Now here you can say, well, God's just destroying the, the men and, and taking captive the women. No, the idea here is a lot of times in that type of uh, culture outside of Israel, the women and children were abused, were made into really uh, to, in horrible slavery situations, and it was, it was not a good situation at all. And God is saying, hey, you need to take care of them. Their men have been killed. The, they, they no longer have the ability to, to completely take care of themselves. So you need to take them with you back to Israel and provide for them. And so here God again is showing His mercy and His kindness to uh, the weak and to the, 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 the people that cannot take care of themselves in these nations. And that is the, the idea given there. Okay, They had the chance. God gave them the chance to, to say, hey, I'll, I'll surrender. They chose not to. So so he destroys the men and takes the women with him. Now then we get into verse, uh, the end of verse 15. The second part of 15 says, which are not of the cities that are near, near uh, your neighbor. Okay, so the cities that are closer to you. And then it talks about it in verse 16 and 17. Okay, only in these cities... Of, uh, only in these cities of these people that the Lord your God has given you as an inheritance, you shall not leave alive anything that breathes. Everything. Okay, and it says, but you shall uh, utterly destroy them with, uh, utterly destroy them. The Hittite, the Amorite, the Canaanite, and the Parasite, and the Hivite, and the Jebusite. Okay, all of these groups of people that live in the Canaan land or the promised land, you are to utterly destroy them as the Lord your God has commanded you. Okay, and this is an area where a lot of times people, like I said, that do not love the Word of God and do not understand it and, uh, and are atheists or whatever will say, they'll use this as a proof text to see that your God is just a mean, violent God that doesn't give care for human life. And obviously they don't study and read the Word of God like they should to get a true grasp on, on what... Uh, what it's saying because they leave off verse 18 verse 18 is a very important verse so that you may not te- so that they may not teach you to do according to the detestable things which they have done for the uh, for their gods so that you 
would sin against the Lord your God. The reason I said that they didn't have to destroy every city and they could take some of the women or the women and children back if they did besiege a city is because they were far enough away that those cities were not going to be an influence on the nation of Israel. These cities that God is talking about here and these groups of people live within the, the land that God has given to Israel as an inheritance. And they do detestable things to their God. These And Jeremy has talked about this before, and we've talked about it in our previous Sunday school, that they were doing uh, sacrifices with their children to gods, and very heinous and detestable things that uh, they would do in, in serving their uh, false gods. And God is saying, I don't want any part of that in, the, in my land, and I don't want any part of that to to infiltrate itself into uh, my people and to cause you to turn away and sin against me as your God. And so therefore, I want you to destroy every everyone and even their animals. I don't want anything left of these people. And God uh, is showing His stern hand on sin and on a complete rebellion against uh, the uh, against Him. And He's saying, I will not put up with it in this land, and you are to utterly destroy them. Now, if you're an atheist, you, you're saying, well, I don't agree with that. Well, that's fine. But that's exactly what God is saying. He's showing here in this law, in this guidelines of war, the importance of keeping the land pure and not allowing the, the traditions of the, the men and women and the culture to seep into Israel. Okay, So again, very, very important that all of this chapter has shown the character of, of God. Okay, And then in 19 through 20, uh, it talks about that if you go to besiege a city and go to attack a city, leave the fruit trees alone. Okay, and You might think, this is a weird little section in here, right? Why is God saying, you know, Save the fruit trees, okay? Uh, God's not an environmentalist, all right? He's, that's not, he's not an activist for <laughs> being an environmentalist. And he is, it was very common when you besieged an area and took control of an area to desolate the area and to really, uh, to completely wipe it out was a very uh, normal cultural thing to do in warfare and um, maybe something that they had, had seen, they had not been really a part of, but maybe had seen. Uh, and it was common because it would wipe out the area and they wouldn't be able to come back quickly. And God is saying here, hey, don't destroy the land. Leave the land alone. Don't, don't be like the other armies that do this or the other people. Uh, all of this chapters, these two chapters, and, and really all of them are focusing on don't be like others that do this. We're going to be a separate people and we're going to conduct ourselves in a different way. So leave the fruit trees if you're going to besiege the city. It's fine to cut down the trees that don't bear, uh, to, that don't bear fruit, but leave the fruit bearing trees alone and use the other trees to, to build your siege against the city and that's okay. And so that is the section there on warfare. Again, showing God's character, His love, His compassion, His strength, His, His view on sin. All of that is very evident in there. And then again, 
he goes into verse or chapter 20 and he gives us five different uh, laws or five different ways to conduct yourself. We're going to try to get through these uh, in, in quickly manner. There, some of these sections are a little, um, they, they have a lot in them, but we're not going to go in detail through them because that would take us uh, a, a long time. And so again, these are situations that could arise in um, the people of Israel. These are all situational things that possibly could come up. And God is saying, this is how you deal with this in this situation if it arises. Again, because they're starting as their own nation. They're governing themselves underneath God. And God is setting up, this is how I want you to live apart and separate and view these different circumstances. Okay, So jump over to chapter 21 and verse 1. If a slain person is found lying in the open country, in the land which the Lord your God has given you to possess, and it is not known who has struck him. Okay, so this section from 1 to verse 9 is talking about an unsolved, uh, unsolved murder, unsolved crime that no one really has any idea who killed him. Uh, It talks about the man being innocent. The idea in this section, and again, I'm not going to go over it for the sake of time in detail, but I just want to give you the principle in here. Now, if you want to read it, then I'm going to give you the principle to apply to what's being said here. The principle here is God is teaching the people of Israel the importance of human life and how human life is important to Him and that shedding innocent blood is not acceptable and is not something to just be overlooked or pass over haphazardly. Okay, If someone has died in your land and you do not know why or how or not know who killed him or the purpose for it, then you are to take a uh, an animal and to um, to break its neck down in the valley. All of these symbols are to to give us understanding that life is precious and that is we are uh, made in the image of God and the blood of the man that was slain cries out for justice and that God is saying here, you need to understand that this is an important thing and that we don't just look at a murder and not care, just pass by, just pass on and say, well, he died, bury him, let's move on. He gives specific guidelines to bring attention to the fact that, no, this is something that matters and that we, you need to uh, perform certain acts to make sure that that blood is not found guilty upon you. And so he gives them some, some guidelines to follow and, and who's responsible to do this. And again, it shows another picture of God's uh, importance on life in that we don't just haphazardly uh, look at life as no, no big deal. 
And you say, well, how does that mirror with what we just went over in chapter 20? Chapter 20, those people have been given generations upon generations to repent and come back to God. But they had completely defiled their land. They were sacrificing. And so God was putting judgment upon them. And so it's a completely different scenario. Uh, uh, this man was innocent and was killed and no one knew why. And so God was making sure that we don't just pass over the innocent death of someone uh, like we do today with our uh, abortions and so on. God didn't want the human life to just no longer be important, uh, especially as they begin to fight and to be in warfare. Okay, So that is the, the meaning of that, really emphasizing the importance of human life and that we are not to just pass by it and not recognize it. Okay, uh, And then in verses 10 uh, through uh, 14, it's a relationship that would happen because of warfare. And this kind of ties back to chapter 20 in the first section, the chapter 10, or verses 10 through uh, 15. Uh, it, this would fit into this category of warfare, okay? So uh, we'll read this just real quick. When you go out to battle against your enemy... And the Lord your God delivers them into your hand, and you take them away captive. Okay, Obviously, this can't mean the people of that are close because they didn't take captives. This would have to mean uh, the, the people that are outside that decided to go against them and to say, no, I don't want to be captive, and they kill the men and take those people away. That's the scenario that's given here. And you, and you see among the captives a beautiful woman and have desire for her and would take her to be uh, a wife for yourself. Then you shall bring her home to your house and you shall, uh, and you shall shave her head and her trimmer nails. And, and she shall also remove the clothes of her captivity and shall remain in your house. Now, this, the idea given here is you're to take care of her. You've brought her into your house. You're to take care of her. Okay. And, uh, and mourn, she's to mourn her father and her mother a full month. And after you may go into her and be her husband and she shall be your wife. And it shall be, if you are not pleased with her, then you shall let her go wherever she wishes. You uh, but you shall not certainly uh, and but you shall certainly not sell her for money you shall you shall not uh, mistreat her because you have humbled her all right so uh, as we look at this again the cultural idea of women in this time we all know that women were not treated well in this time and era especially captive women Captive women were never treated well. They were usually passed around uh, and, and mistreated in, in, in numerous ways and made slaves. And very, very unkind things done to the women in, in the culture of that day. And God is saying, okay, this is, again, not an optimal, not an ideal situation, but knowing that he's dealing with fallen people that are going to do uh, sinful things. He's setting up some guidelines that if you do desire to go after uh, a, a woman from another nation uh, that is not a part of the nation that you must destroy, this is how you must treat her. 
Very important. You cannot treat her improperly. And this law is specifically set up to protect the woman in this scenario. Okay, very important to understand. God is protecting the woman in this scenario uh, given here. Because it's a very likely scenario. And some key things to understand and how he's doing that. He, he has her come and stay in his house. He, she is to, uh, he is to take care of her. That's the idea given there with the cutting of the hair and trimming the nails and, and changing of the clothes, you know, to, to bring her in to kind of show grace to her and, and let her mourn. Now, this does not say anything about her husband here, so we're assuming this was a single woman that uh, is mourning either the death of her father, which would obviously be her father, uh, would have died, and then uh, possibly the mother, or just being separated from him. So she's allowed to mourn that for a full month, but she lives in his house, and so he gets to be around her, he gets to see her, he kind of gets to know her, be uh, associated with her. And if he still decides after that month that, yes, I want to get married, then uh, they would go about get, uh, that process of getting married. We don't know a ton of the marriage laws and how that worked in the Old Testament. Um, we don't know their ceremonies. We know they had different kinds of ceremonies. We see that in the New Testament. I don't want to get too much into this, but we do know that the, the sealing of, hey, you're married is consummating that marriage. And that's what's given I, the idea here is he has consummated the marriage. Uh, they have gone into uh, the bedroom together. Okay. And, now he has become his wife, or she has become his wife. This is important because that elevates her status between not just a, uh, a captive woman or a slave. She is elevated to the wife status, which is important because you have to treat your wife differently than you would a slave or a captive. Okay, So she has made the wife and then it says in verse 14, which this can, you, you, people can struggle with this, but when you understand the, the idea that we're dealing with a not a perfect situation, we're dealing with fallen sinful people, and God is uh, making sure that because of that we're going to protect her and, and uh, setting up some guidelines on how this is to work. If you, if, uh, in verse 14, you shall be, if you are not pleased with her. Now, this idea says, you know, uh, she made me mad one day, I'm gonna kick her out. That's not the idea. The idea here is the, they've only known each other a month, it ain't working out. Her cultural background, and you, the, the things just aren't jiving. Okay, it's not that, hey, I'm just not pleased with her, so I'm going to get rid of her and find another one. Because of what the rest of the verse says, this idea is maybe she's struggling to get into the Israelite culture, and it's just not working out. Okay, So if, that's, if that is what is happening, okay, the, the, they're fighting and so on, and it's just not a good situation, then you shall let her go wherever she wishes. This was not the way it was done typically. Okay? 
typically in other cultures you would sell her or do other things. And it says you most certainly must not sell her for money, but she should be able to go wherever she desires. She's completely free to do whatever she wants and you have no authority or guides over her. You are to, to completely uh, give her 100% freedom. Okay, and so again, this isn't what you know the perfect desire is, but God is showing that we are going to be different as a nation, and we are not going to treat women uh, poorly, and, and especially captive women. So that's that's the idea being given there. Okay, and then we get to uh, a next section. Okay, and I'm, we're not going to spend a bunch of time here. Again, these are just scenarios that God is dealing with. Uh, that could arise, okay? Again, a not a optimal situation. This is not what God would desire, and we never see really anything positive coming out of a polygamist marriage, okay? And that's what's being talked about here in 15 through 17. If a man has two wives, and one loved and the other unloved, and both loved and unloved have borne him a son, and the firstborn son belongs to the unloved, then it shall be in the day that he wills, that he gives the inheritance, um, that he has to his sons, he cannot make the son of the loved the firstborn before the son of the unloved who is the firstborn. But you shall acknowledge the firstborn, the son of the unloved, by giving him a double portion of all that is his, for he is the beginning of your strength, so uh, to him belongs the right to the firstborn. Okay, the the idea here, there's two women. You get married, the, the one wife is not as loved as the other. We've seen this, you know, with uh, Jacob uh, and his wives and, and the struggle that this causes. This happens for whatever reason God allowed it, that there would be plural marriages. Um, but he is also saying, hey, if this is a scenario that happens, He's protecting the children of this scenario. God again is showing grace, mercy, and He is protecting the children in a, uh, a situation in a family that might be a little uh, weird. Okay, He's not going to allow the loved wife son to uh, be over the unloved son. So he's protecting the rights of the son in the culture. The, uh, it's not We don't really see that today in our culture here in America. There are cultures around the world that still do honor the firstborn in, in certain ways. Uh, we don't see that here, but back in this time, in this day, the firstborn had double rights uh, and, and was made uh, the heir of the house, okay? And he was the leader of the house if the father would to pass. And so he's protecting that and saying, you can't just determine whoever you want to be uh, the, the heir of your house or the firstborn, depending on how, who, who you love or not. That, that is not going to be accepted. And the, the true firstborn will always keep that right. And so that's what's being established here. And again, uh, making sure that if that scenario were to come up, which off, um, this must be something that happened enough where God felt like, <coughs> I need to uh, put this in here so when this situation arises, this is how they know to deal with it. Okay? 
And now in the, in the next section, verses 18 through 21, this is a section that probably some of you are kind of familiar with and have heard. Okay, and this is talking about the rebellious, stubborn son. All right, and I know that some of you wish that this law still existed at some points uh, in life with your children. All right, that you get to your uh, wits end with them and say, ah, I wish this law was still around. Um, and then you would repent from that feeling later. But uh, at the heat of the moment, uh, we've all thought of this chapter. Okay, but I want to give us some understanding on this chapter or on this little section. If if a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey his father or his mother, and when they chasten him, he will not even listen to them. This is the uh, then the father and the mother shall seize him and bring him to the elders of the city and the gateway of the hometown. They shall say to the elders of the city, "This son of ours is a stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey us. He is a um, he is a glutton and a drunkard." Then all the men of the city shall stone him to death, so that so you shall remove his e- remove the evil from your midst. And this is a key part of this uh, uh, section. And all Israel will hear of it and fear. Okay, so this is the law designed to set up to bring fear into the hearts of rebellious people in Israel. Now, this is not speaking, I do not believe, of young children. Okay, This is not talking about small children that are, are still learning on how to obey and, and growing up as a child. This is not the idea given here because it talks about him being a sluggard and a drunkard. Okay, You don't see children often described as sluggards and drunkards. So this is given the idea of an older child, uh, someone that's probably maybe an older teenager or late teenager into his 20s that's just rebellious and lazy and drunkard and just he's not worth, uh, uh, not worth the sand that he stands upon. God is giving the, 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 the right to bring them before the elders. The others will judge what they feel. And if it were to happen uh, <clears throat> that they found that this is the case, they were to stone him. Okay, so this is a law. This laws, again, these are read to the people. Okay, and so if you're hearing this law for the first time and you're one of those sluggard, drunkard men, you might think, hmm, I, I might need to correct uh, my my way of uh, living here uh, because I could be stoned to death in inside of God's law and and it would be justified now um, through the studies and through the commentaries this law has uh, far as we know had never been exercised no one has uh, we haven't seen any evidence of this law being exercised in scripture um, maybe if it had uh, some of Israel's future issues would have been curbed or or solved. If you go through the study of the kings that we just did of Israel, we saw lazy, drunkard, sluggard, worthless, low-hearted men all through the kingdom uh, that led Israel. Um, That would 
possibly been able to have been curbed if they would have listened maybe to this law. Uh, but as far as we know, the law had never been exercised as far as what we see in Scripture. But again, it was put in place to say, hey, we're not going to allow just rebellion and, and uh, rampant disrespect for authority in, in, our, in our homes and our parents. And that is the idea given there. Okay? And then the last section, uh, this is a, uh, talks about uh, if a person deserves uh, to, to die. And so we'll read that. And this has some importance uh, to, to the New Testament. This ties into the New Testament. If a man has committed a sin worthy of death and, it, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his corpse shall not hang all night on the tree, but you shall surely bury him on the same day, for he who is hung um, is accursed of God, so that you do not defile your land, which the Lord your God has given you as an inheritance. Okay, that do not defile the land is all through Deuteronomy. And God is very much wanting them to understand that this land is a holy land. This land is set apart. This land is given you by God. And the acts done in it should not be done like other nations and should be done in a right manner. And God is setting up here the idea that if a man is worth or worthy of death, he needs to be put to death, and you um, hang him on a tree. The idea here is hanging him for display for people to understand. This man did X, Y, Z wrong, and we are putting him on display by hanging him on a tree because it talks about his corpse. So. Uh, through the studies, no, this was for sure not crucifixion because crucifixion was not done in this time frame. It was a Roman thing that was done. And <clears throat> as well, uh, it doesn't appear that it would be a hanging like with a noose because it talks about hanging his corpse. And so a corpse is something that's already dead. And so it would be something done as display saying, hey, don't follow the same pathway as as this person has. If that is a method chosen to do that, you are to bring him down and bury him the same day. Do not allow the sun to go down because you will defile the land. And so this is in the law given by God and to, to how to deal with that. But it also ties into to the New Testament. Uh, we know that Jesus was also crucified and was hung on a tree okay and Paul talks about that in Galatians chapter number three Galatians chapter number three directly refers and Jeremy and Tyler have both brought this up that Deuteronomy is mentioned numerous times in the in the New Testament and here is one of those times where Paul refers back to this uh, law that God had set up in Deuteronomy chapter number 3 in verse 13 Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law okay he redeemed us from the curse by his death he redeemed us from the curse of the law having been accursed for us okay now follow the train the thought here cuz this is where it's going to revert or mention back to 
uh, Deuteronomy, for having been a cursed force, for it is written in Deuteronomy chapter 21, um, in verse 23, accursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Okay, And so this is a direct tie back. God has established it many generations before he was put to death that if anyone were to be hanged on a tree, he is to be taken down and buried. And it is an accursed and wicked thing to be done is to be hanged on a tree. And so again, this ties beautifully in with the New Testament and letting us understand that Christ bore our sins and became accursed for you and I so that we would no longer have to live under the laws of the Old Testament. And some of these laws uh, were not set up. We have to understand there's, there's differences in the laws. Okay, The laws that I'm reading about here were not laws to show that they could not do these. Okay, These were not laws to show that there's no way that you could ever fully measure up to these laws. These were more guideline laws, moral laws, ways to conduct yourself. Now there's other laws that there's just no way humanly possible that they could... Uh, to f- to fulfill all of those. Some of these laws, like we just read about today, were able to keep. They were able to do these and, 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 and try to, uh, to live by these guidelines and laws that God had set up. And th- what I want us to understand and get from today's lesson is primarily God's laws and he, that what He set up shows His glory, His grace, his judgment against sin. And if you really begin to study and understand the laws that he set up and, and begin to grasp, it shows how amazing and glorious our God is and that he does not just put up with sin. He protects people. Uh, he protects certain groups of people from being mistreated and shows grace and mercy to people. But he also shows his judgment. And what we learn by studying the law is two things. One, first thing that this is how the people were to conduct themselves. For us today, we learn, hey, God is... Uh, revealing himself through us in the Old Testament. And we can learn his nature and who he is and how glorious that is. And then he's always pointing to, they would not have understood uh, verse 23 to mean something uh, in the future, but we can look back and understand God is the orchestrator of how everything works together. And God knew that those two would be tied together and that ultimately one day Christ would be uh, hung on a tree and be cursed for us and pay the penalty of sin for us. And so we understand how beautifully God entwines Scripture together and how He shows His character and who He is and how glorious it is when we study and learn about our glorious and holy King and God. And so that, uh, that kind of wraps that up. Hopefully that gives you an understanding there of those chapters. And today... As you reflect on what we talked about, reflect on the idea that God has given us uh, a picture, a clear picture of who He is and how glorious and wonderful He is. Let's pray. Lord, thank You so much for Your Word. 
Thank you for the things that we see in it. Thank you for how you uh, reveal yourself to us. And Lord, if we dig into Scripture and begin to, to desire to know you more, we can see you clearly how wonderful you are and how your, your laws that you set up truly do reflect your glory and your worth and your praise. And Lord, we are so grateful for you. Lord, I just pray that you'd be with our people this week and uh, bring us back together safely uh, next week. In your name, amen.